you how to reignite the embers of a distant and lonely relationship into a blazing, emotionally intimate connection. I'm your host, Amber Dawson. I'm a psychologist, author, and speaker. A few of my favorite things are my husband, grapes, and my adorable little dog, Riggs. Now let's learn how to create a soul crush in love that lasts. Hit subscribe in your podcast app so that simply by listening, you can rekindle your relationship by pouring a little gas on your relationship ember. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek a local couples therapist for relationship counseling for couples therapy. Welcome back to Relationship Psych, the podcast. Today, I have someone that I personally follow on Instagram. I think my best guests come from Instagram because I love their content. It draws me in and I just want to hear from them. So today I have Nicole Walker. She's a licensed counselor and certified coach based in upstate New York. Her passion is helping people get out of their own way of finding and keeping the healthy love they deserve. In her spare time, she's binging on Bravo, baking or hanging with her two pups, Gary and Oliver. I am also hanging with my pup in my spare time. He's my travel bud, my nap buddy, my uh, therapy sidekick. So the dogs, they're like the best. Oh, Welcome to the show. The absolute best. Thank you, Amber. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to be here too. So we talk, we're talking about attachment. We're going to debunk some, we're going to look at the anxious avoidant trap today in particular, but before we even go there, I think it's important that, you know, some people know this is, and some people are like, huh? what's an anxious What's an avoidance? Oh no, <laughs> they're in a trap. Um, but before I even go there, I'd love to hear, Nicole, how come you are interested in, in working in relationships and attachment in particular? Well, I think for me personally, um, and this may be surprising to hear from someone who specializes in this, you know, and is a therapist, but I used to suck at love. I was no good. Um, I grew up and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this with no healthy role models of love, right? So when you don't really have that growing up, you kind of become an adult. And of course, you know, our subconscious brain is attracted to what feels familiar because we associate familiarity with safety. So without even knowing it, right, I was in this place in my mid twenties where I was just super frustrated and annoyed, right? Like, why do I keep ending up in these situations with these emotionally unavailable men? Like this is not working, right? And um, just felt really lost and, you know, didn't really have the knowledge at that time um, of kind of, you know, why that was happening and the connections. And yes, I was a therapist at that time, but in a previous life, my specialty was working with uh, substance abuse. Me too. So, Oh, there, small yeah. world. Um, so, you know, I kind of got to this place when it was like my late 20s and going to wedding after wedding by myself, you know, and like awkwardly when the slow song came on being like, okay, like, what do I do now? You know, and just getting to this place of really reflecting and being like, okay, I'm the common denominator here, right? Of why these relationships aren't working out. Like, let me really dive into this. And why I'm so passionate about attachment theory and that work is because it was such a game changer for me personally and really gave me a framework and vocabulary to put to kind of my behavior and why I was doing what I was doing. And it also made me feel less frustrated with myself and allowed me to offer a lot more compassion to myself because it made so much sense. Like, oh my gosh, this is why I'm doing this. Like, mm. it's not like, you know, I don't know. I was just putting so many barriers up between myself and finding that love that I wanted. Um, so that's to kind of sum up why I'm so passionate about it is for me personally, it really, really helped me find that love I wanted. And as I was sharing with you earlier, I just got married a month ago. So it all worked out. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I already said, congrats, but like extra congrats. And I think it's so hard when you suck at love and you're a therapist too. Like that's my, my very much my story as well. Sucked at love, like wanted it, wanted it really bad. But if you've been listening for a while, listeners, you know, I was married and then for 10 months and then quickly got divorced. And I was like, well, that, 
wasn't how I saw things going. <laughs> and I think someone even someone someone did comment on my Facebook at the time was where I was more active. And they said like in the comments, like, isn't she a marriage therapist? And I was like, eh. Um, and Aww. like it sucked. I I knew a lot of I knew a lot of theory and stuff, but it was hard to apply to myself. And when I learned some tools and some frameworks, it was game changing. You're like, holy crap, like a whole new world is available to me. But like, like you, you're raised in a family system. You learn what you see. There's no real education about like, how should you be in a relationship? What is healthy? What is not? You just do what you've always done. You do what you know. And then like, well, that's not working out very well. Right. No, totally. So, um, and, and I do want to say too, like, yes, I got married. That is not everyone's goal. You know, that's something that I wanted personally, but yeah. in no way, shape or form is the work over. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you can speak to this uh, too, that of course there's things that I still struggle with and, you know, I go to therapy myself and, you know, continue to educate myself and help other people. Um, but, you know, even though we're therapists and specialize in this, like we're humans too. And like, personally, I would so much rather see someone who's like been through it than like, oh, I've always like relationships have never been a problem for me. Right. Like I, I think that I hope that, you know, our stories just make up, make us more relatable, um, and hit that point home that the work that we're asking and inviting other people to do, we've done ourselves. Yeah. Totally. And like I'm married and too, might not be everybody's goal, but what I for sure wanted was like a stable, long-term happy love. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to have that. Um, and like, and we, there's still frustrations and things to work through. Like yesterday, nothing big happened, a series of little annoyances. And I'm like laying in bed and I see my husband's hand. We're in bed and we're watching a TV show before bed. I see his hand next to me and I know he's reaching out to connect. I see his hand and I'm like, I want to touch your hand. You in my head, I'm like, you've been a poop. I don't want to touch your hand. And then like therapist Amber floats up outside of herself and is like, really? Is it, is it that like, he didn't really do anything. You're kind of rubbing on each other a little bit. It's normal for couples to rub on each other, but nothing has really happened. Do you really want to go to bed pissy about this and like, have it lean, like go on? Or do you want to accept his invitation here? You can see his hand. Do you want to accept this repair he's offering? And there's this piece of me that like wants to blow it up and throw a grenade on it. Like I'm good at that. <laughs> um, but I was like, okay, I have a choice here. I can blow this up because my feelings are a little hurt. Or I can accept the repair, go to like hold his hand for an hour and go to sleep saying, I love you. And that'll feel a lot better. But it doesn't mean I don't wrestle with like, Ooh, I'd really like to throw a grenade on this one and hurt him because I'm a little hurt. I want to hurt him. I'm anxious. I'm anxiously attached. I've got some earned security now, but like, I'm one, you hurt me. I'm, I want to blow it all up. I'm like, you hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. And I'm, uh, have, I've had to learn to not because I'm hurt, not destabilize and threaten the relationship. Um, and instead allow repairs to happen, accept repairs. Um, and, and that's taken a lot of work. Whereas a few years ago, I would have seen his hand there and probably like, I don't know what I'd have done, but it wouldn't have been hold his hand back. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we're talking a little bit about our stories, but okay. So fill, fill us in. If the listeners are hearing us talk about some of these words or like attachment high level, what is attachment and what are these attachment styles? Yeah, totally. So um, I will try and break this down in the simplest terms I can, but attachment um, theory that was created by John Bowlby in the 60s. He was a psychologist. And it's basically this idea that our earliest relationships with our caregivers affect our relationships for the rest of our lives and just how important and impactful those relationships are. So um, we have four attachment styles, secure, anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. Um, but those are all kind of a product of your caregiver's ability to meet your needs on a consistent basis, create stability in the home, security in the home, and something that we call attunement. So there's a difference between attunement and presence. Uh, you know, your parent or caregiver just being physically around in the home isn't really enough. Attunement is the ability to kind of notice your baby's upset, right? Care for them, support them, nurture them acknowledge their emotional experience, be it, you know, positive or negative, that's kind of attunement's a little more than that physical presence. Um, so if that happens on a consistent basis, we have secure attachment, 
Anxious attachment is when our providers are really inconsistent. So sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. And that inconsistency produces a lot of anxiety in the child. Um, avoidant attachment is usually if there's just no emotional support. So why is a kid going to continue to go to someone for something that they can't provide, right? They learn over time, like, this ain't working. I'm going to shut it down. This ain't getting me nowhere. Um, Another way that that can happen is if you have a parent who is emotionally immature or maybe has some personality stuff uh, going on, some personality disordered behaviors, where that child doesn't really have space to be themselves because they're maybe having to enter like a parentification role or, you know, always having to care for the parents' needs. So there's not really any space for their needs. Uh, and then lastly, disorganized is often when the environment feels very chaotic and fearful. And that creates this confusion in the child because, uh, you know, of course, biologically, we want connection with others. But if we're fearful, like we don't want that. Right. So it's this weird push pull that happens um, individually. And, you know, that fear that can be a result of um, the child being abused in some way, the child witnessing the caregiver abusing someone else. It can also be a product of maybe the parent is um, abusive, but there's something else that's contributing to all this chaos. So financial insecurity, a parent who's struggling with addiction, um, constantly moving, you know, different things like that. So that is kind of attachment in a nutshell in those um, kind of relationships we have early on, like I said, affect all of our relationships later in life. Mm-hmm. Okay, great nutshell description. I was just, as you, as you were summarizing this, I was like, dang, to cover what attachment is, attachment styles, <laughs> and like, you just bang that out in five minutes, like. That was, that was pretty good. That was, that was pretty good. I wish, I wish like, I feel like when I was in school, someone tried to explain attachment. I wish they could have done it that succinctly and, and, uh, elegantly. I feel like attachment styles took me a really long time to learn in school. It's like, what is this? I don't understand. But if someone could have just succinctly put it out there like that, I might've had a lot easier time. Um, uh, okay. So we've got these attachment styles high level. Okay. So people high level, if you're listening, a few episodes back, if you're like, uh, I still don't really know what that is. I have a couple resources for you. So one, go back in the episodes, look at attachment styles with, and Stan Tatkin, and I'll link that in the show notes. Additionally, I have a free download attachment styles 101 that you can download that goes over. Unfortunately, I didn't put disorganized in there, which I've got some flack for. Uh, but if you want to just go over three of them, not four, there's, there's those. Nicole, do you have any uh, resources? Well, anyway, I'll put that link there. But then Nicole, do you have any resources for attachment if people want to summarize those again for you? Yeah. So um, if you check out my Instagram, which is at the practice of peace, um, I have a free attachment style workbook Ooh. in there that you can download. Um, and also I am launching a course in January, which is going to be all about attachment styles. Um, so if you follow me along, definitely look out for that. It's going to be really affordable, accessible. It's going to be less than $30 a month. Um, kind of like a membership cool. vibe. Um, but that would be something else that hopefully will be helpful. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly link the, um, we'll link your Instagram and then it, we'll link the workbook that you have as well. And then, Hey, cool. That's super cool. In January, congrats putting out a Thank course, building a lot of work. So congrats on, on it's a lot of work. Done. It's so much work. I know. I know you're like, Oh, I want to do this. Oh, wow. I had no idea how much work it is, but congrats. Super yeah. cool. Thank I'm you. sure they'll be very helpful for people. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the anxious avoidant trap. So before we got on, we we're talking a little bit about how this is Something people don't know a lot about. I have people asking me on my Instagram all the time, can can anxious and avoidance be in a relationship? Can they make it work? Um, and let's debunk, let's explain, let's help them understand what on earth this is. So what even is the anxious avoidant trap? Okay. So this is a very, very common pairing that we see in couples, right? Is like a moth to a flame, the anxiously attached individual is very drawn to the avoidantly attached individual and vice versa. And I think it's also really helpful to add some like pop culture examples in here because yes, we see do. this 
all the time, right? In TV movies, because it is pretty like exciting, steamy. You don't know what's going to happen. Like drama, right? Makes for great television. Right? Because who um, wants to watch something stable on TV or have yeah, them walk away yeah, from the bad right? behavior? That's not, <laughs> that's not going to sell a blockbuster movie. Exactly. Which is like sad, right? I mean, I wish there was more um, examples of healthy love out there. But, um, but yes, the majority of relationships you're seeing on TV, not, not great examples of healthy, secure attachment. Um, but I would say probably the most popular is Carrie and Big from Sex and the City. Uh, Big's definitely more avoidant, right? Like he kind of always keeps Carrie on his toes, never wants to fully commit, always one foot out the door, right? He starts a relationship with her when while he's with someone else. Um, and you just kind of see this dynamic of him constantly withdrawing and her constantly pursuing. Um, so that's a great example. I don't know if anyone recently watched The Summer I Turned Pretty. If you haven't, it was a delightful show on Amazon Prime. I would highly recommend it. Um, but the two main characters there, uh, Conrad and Belly, that's another great example of just, yeah, that kind of demand withdraw cycle. Um, also another big one, Chuck and Blair, if we got any Gossip Girl fans here, OG. Um, but that's another really good example of... Um, kind of what that looks like. Um, and why these two are drawn to each other is they kind of validate each other's unconscious view of the world, right? For the anxious person, it's that when I get close to people, they run. And for the avoidant individual, when I get close to people, they need too much for me and I don't know how to handle it, mm -hmm. right? So that's kind of why they work. And another thing is, um, you know, if we think to kind of some of these couples I just mentioned, the anxious, see, they kind of see in each other what they feel like they're lacking or what they wish they had, right? Like the anxious sees in the avoidant individual, this like solid, secure, stoic, you know, like stable base who's not very emotional. And then the avoidant sees in the anxious, this very lively, exciting, you know, exuberant, emotional person. Um, so that, those are kind of some of the reasons why those two are drawn to each other. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are drawn. They are drawn. So when these two are drawn together, like a moth to a flame, what are some of the common pitfalls that happens in these pairs that are quite different? Yes. Well, I think um, the demand withdraw cycle which I commented on, which can be very just stressful. Um, it's just a lack of stability. I mean, I don't know how else to say it, right? Like you see these people get in this continuous demand withdraw cycle where the anxious is pursuing, um, you know, trying to kind of get the avoidant open up, right? Like often this happens after a disagreement and the avoidant individual is pulling away, pulling away, which obviously is upsetting the anxiously attached individual. So they're not happy. The avoidantly attached individual isn't happy because they're like, yo, I need my space. Leave me alone. This is too much. You're too needy. All of those things. And then we see this very short period of kind of reconciliation when there's connection and then we start start all over. So the pitfall is there's very few moments of stability and connection in the relationship. But adversely, that's also why it can feel so kind of like hot and steamy and why people in this dynamic stay together is because, because those moments of connection are so few and far between that when it does happen, it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. So like, even though the highs are so short, they feel, you know, that much sweeter because you never really get them, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's kind of what's striking for me here is like that intermittent reinforcement. I'm kind of imagining yes. playing a slot machine, you lose your quarter or I haven't been to a slot machine in a really long time. Last time I think <laughs> I went was I was like 19 and I was at this casino and it was raining when I was on vacation. So I had quarters. And I like lost, you know, you lose your quarter, you lose your quarter, you lose your quarter. I look over and my boyfriend at the time, he's still playing. So I kept playing my quarters. And then eventually it gives you this whole slosh of money and you're like, success, I win. So then you keep playing your quarters thinking, oh, I got it once. 
am I going to get it again? And uh, for me, my experience a lot of the time with is the anxious in this is I would be with people who would, they would kind of give, give me nothing. It was like, I kept giving them my quarter, be like, are they going to this time? And they wouldn't give me there or they wouldn't give me a lot or they wouldn't give me what I wanted. And then finally I would get it. And it felt like burning in my chest, like fireworks going off. My whole body's aroused. Like you get it and you're like, yes, the validation that they, they will like you back that need it's finally fulfilled. And you're like, okay. And then it goes away and you're like, oh my God, now what? <laughs> right. No, totally. It's this emotional roller coaster of highs and lows that takes up all of your mental energy, right? Like it's almost, it's like hard to even like live your life. You know what I mean? Because it's just can be such a consuming dynamic. And I loved that analogy that you used with the slot machine, because like, you know, what we also see and in those examples I shared, it's like often, um, the like good girl trying to change the bad boy right and like those wins feel that much sweeter because you feel like you work so hard for it right like I put so many quarters in that slot machine and got nothing so like I really earned this win mm -hmm. you know so I think that's another part that just can kind of keep you stuck um and the other thing that comes to mind for me too is for an avoidantly attached person, they want to avoid intimacy, right? And a resolution of a conflict brings people closer together and creates intimacy. So, you know, you have this person, the anxiously attached, who's like trying to fix things and the avoidantly attached, and they don't know they're doing this. Like I'm throwing no shade, right? Like these are completely unconscious things and dynamics that are going on. But for someone avoidantly attached, they don't want things to be resolved right? They don't want to have this big resolution and like everything be okay, because then that's going to put them that much closer to that person. And they don't want that. So it's just constantly like these competing opposite needs, which just creates a lot of kind of chaos and insecurity. Can you speak to a little bit why like the avoidant in those moments, why they don't want that resolution? What lies beneath that, that makes that connection and that closeness hard? Yeah, totally. Um, and I can definitely speak from experience as someone who used to be very avoidantly attached and worked a lot on that. Um, but I think it's a big fear of vulnerability. It's a big fear of showing up as your authentic self and that not being enough. Um, you know, for someone who grew up receiving the message that closeness and intimacy is unsafe and we must avoid it at all costs they're physiologically in the body, right? Like if I was sitting down with you, Amber, and you were like, let's talk this out, you know, like all my sirens are going off, like get out of here, right? So I think that's why it's so important. And I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about this more, like to have self-soothing strategies because to kind of sit through that discomfort and to have kind of that insight and awareness of like, okay, I know I'm freaking out and want to get out of here, but it's because of blank, right? To kind of connect it to that childhood experience. And is this still serving me in this moment, right? Is it getting in the way of my goal of maybe having a happy, healthy relationship and connecting with others? And how can I work through this discomfort to sit in this space a little bit more of, you know, being close with someone else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And under that, like makes so much sense. I'm just hearing about the fear that like, what if it's unstable? What if my needs aren't met? And so that drives you to want to run. And I love what you kind of talked about there, getting into some of that self-soothing, the questioning, you're like, what am I getting away from here? Is this still serving me? And those are really like, first, you got to be aware that you're trying to pull away and second, be willing to like take a look at it. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. It's, it's so hard. And I have so much just compassion um, for people who do this work because it is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so much easier. Like um, I said a couple of times before on my Instagram and stuff, a lot of times it's so much easier to be with the wrong person than the right person, right? 
that doesn't push you out of your comfort zone. You get to kind of hide and do the same old thing, right? Like kind of this trap that we're talking about. The anxious gets to be like, see, you know, no one wants to be close to me. And the avoidant gets to be like, see, people are way too needy and need too much for me. This is why I got to be by myself, right? And, you know, yes, these dynamics can work. And I'm sure we'll get into some strategies for that. Like if you are listening to this and you're like, oh my God, that's me do not fear, right? Like we can get through this and, um, you know, there are strategies to work through this, but that's why I think kind of that insight and awareness is so important. And that intrinsic motivation to want to change these things. Yeah, totally. So before we go on to kind of some strategies for change, if the, when the anxious gets activated in this trap, when they see their avoidant partner pulling away, or maybe they've been close and the anxious wants to keep it that way. What kind of behaviors do we then see in the anxious partner to try to keep that connection or closeness? Yes. So this is what we would call protest behaviors. Mm. Um, and that's basically a fancy way of saying uh, strategies to try and reestablish connection with your partner and try and bring them back to you. Right. So, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, I work with a lot of people where when you see this avoidant individual, right, having no emotional reaction, being just stone cold, like wanting to leave, like that is the anxiously attached person is just activating you more and more, right? You just like want to shake them and be like, oh my God, what is going on over there? Like, give me something. Um, and that's why it makes so much sense that they engage in these protest behaviors. So some examples of that would be like threatening to break up when you don't really want to break up, but you're trying to elicit that emotional reaction or intentionally trying to make them jealous, or if they leave calling and texting incessantly, or, you know, just playing games, like not communicating directly, right? Like thinking in your head, like, well, they didn't talk to me for two hours. So when they come home, I'm going to like give them the cold shoulder and like wait for them to come to me, right? Like these behaviors make sense, um, but they aren't helpful in, you know, kind of bringing two people closer together. Yeah. Okay. So we get in this, we get in the anxious avoidant trap. Uh, the avoidant is trying to gain distance, gain space, decrease the level of intimacy and connection after moments of closeness. Then we get the anxious who wants that connection, trying to reestablish it, except they're going about trying to reestablish it in ways that make sense, but are less than helpful. And we have these two people that probably care about each other very much, but they're activated in different ways. And those are clashing up against each other. So if these two people are listening and they're like, Ooh, maybe this is happening to us. They're relating right now. What are kind of some of the first steps someone could take if they're recognizing this pattern to make their relationship or work towards maybe an earned security? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think um, first and foremost, this is going to be a lot easier if both people want to work on this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like, of course, couples therapy is great, right? It creates two willing people to create intimacy. But I will say there is a great quote that I love by Esther Perel, where she says it takes two people to create a pattern, but only one person to change it, right? So I just want to say that for maybe people who are listening that are in a really serious committed relationship where they don't really maybe feel like it's an option right now, or they want to exit and their partner doesn't want to go to therapy, their partner doesn't want to change. And they're like, oh gosh, what can I do? Like you can kind of change these dynamics by changing yourself and changing the way that you uh, relate to things. So wherever you kind of are on that spectrum, right? Like you're either both totally in it and going to go to couples therapy, or maybe you're more in it than your partner. Like not to fear, we can still kind of create um, healthy, positive change. Um, and I guess another note I'll say on that too, just because I get so many questions on Instagram from people like my partner's avoidant. How can I get them to go to therapy? I just have to throw this in there. You don't. Okay. Yeah. People rarely change for other people. They change for themselves. We need that intrinsic motivation. And I just want to throw this in as a side note, because I see so many people push their partner to go to therapy or coaching, whatever, when they don't want to go. 
And it is just a waste of time and money because their partner half-asses it. They don't open up. They don't share. And then the other partner is so disappointed because they thought this was their Hail Mary and that like this was going to change things and it hasn't done anything. So now they're even more bummed. So I know I'm going off on a tangent, but I just wanted to to add that too, that I think... um, the the solution to what we're talking about here is to not force your partner to go to therapy either. Yeah. And then people change at their own rates. And unfortunately, while we might talk about that there is change possible and there is dynamics you can make work, sometimes what we also learn through therapy, through self-growth is that this isn't the right partnership for us. Right. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But like the other kind of myth, I think, is that if you go to couples therapy, the goal is to always like make the relationship work. And sometimes the the goal of couples therapy or any kind of work is to learn the truth about whether or not this can work. I mean, as a couples therapist, my goal always, I'm like, I want everyone to be together and how can I help (laughs) and how can I make you love each other? Like, I want that to happen. I'm a romantic, but sometimes in these journeys, we learn that we can't, but before we get there, we can do what you're talking about. One of us can try to change the pattern and we can see if I make change, like if I throw a rock in a pond, there's always going to be that ripple, right? So if I'm the rock and I jump in the pond, how does that ripple go? And there's always steps we can take before we get to that end place of saying, well, actually I've gained some data. Maybe this isn't what I'm looking for, but there is certainly things we can do. And therapy isn't the end all be all. It's not a magic wand. It's not like Harry Potter and we're like, poof, and now ta-da, you're fixed. Therapy is a lot of work that has to be, yeah, two willing people. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to share what I hope are some like tangible strategies here. So the overall goal when we have an anxious avoidant trap is we want to encourage the anxiously attached individual to gain some self-soothing strategies so they can kind of calm their system down a little bit. So they're not approaching their partner in such a reactive state, right? And they have other ways to kind of meet their needs or to self-soothe that are not 100% of the time need to be met by their partner. And for the avoidantly attached individual, kind of the overarching goal is to support that person in opening up more, sharing more, and sitting in that space that feels really uncomfortable, uh, being more vulnerable and connecting and all of that. So uh, couples that I work with, I really focus on what I like to call the three C's, which is communication, collaboration and compromise, right? So compromise is kind of what I just talked about, right? We're each going to try and work on this a little bit and kind of meet in the middle. And if, you know, there's things that maybe aren't important to you, but are super important to your partner, how can we kind of, um, again, meet in the middle and help meet those requests? So if you feel that it's silly that, you know, your partner wants you to text them every day, I love you. But like, if that means the world to your partner, like, who cares? Just do it, right? Like little things like that. Um, And I think communication is so important because vulnerability fosters empathy, right? And if we can kind of dig a little bit into our attachment style, why I am the way that I am. When we know kind of the background, it allows us to be so much more empathetic and patient with our partner, right? Like, you know, let's say I had disorganized attachment and I opened up and shared with you that I grew up in a very abusive home and I struggle with these things, you know, X, Y, Z because of that you'd be like, oh my gosh, like, thank you so much for opening up to me. You know what I mean? Like now I really understand as opposed to having no idea why this person is doing these things, right? And is just acting very erratically. Like that, again, communication and vulnerability fosters empathy. So I think that's a huge part of the communication part. I think collaboration, I always encourage people to talk about talking. And I know that sounds funny, but If you know, every time we get in a disagreement, one person leaves and then the other person is blowing them up with texting and calls and that ain't working, let's sit down when we're both chill. I'm not, this is not to be done in the middle of a fight, but let's both sit down. (laughs) No, 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 no. And let's collaboratively come up with a game plan for how we want to address these things next time they happen. 
And I say collaboratively. This is not you telling your partner what they need to do or vice versa, but let's both kind of share how we feel, what we need, what we would want, and come up with a game plan together that both parties agree to. Yes. And that's hard, that collaboration. Like there's a lot of pitfalls. People will say, well, what you're asking me doesn't feel organic or genuine or natural or... I don't want to do that, or I have work to do, so I can't come back and talk about this, or I need it figured out right now. And there's a lot of pitfalls to working on collaboration. And what I really encourage people to remember is collaboration to have like that awesome partnership that so many of us wants. It means a little bit of sacrifice for the shared gain, choosing to put the relationship ahead of either one of you in a lot of moments at times. And um, just yeah, it's, it's hard to do new things. Anytime you do a new thing, it is hard. It doesn't feel genuine or authentic or natural. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just going to be hard for a little bit. But with any new thing you try, if you do it consistently enough, what's hard in the beginning becomes easier in the end. And so yes. if you do something enough, it may feel natural at some point, maybe like texting your partner every day. Great example. My husband and I like literally when he goes travel, he goes on these backcountry trips and I always get all stressed out. So I got him to get a, I bought him a Garmin GPS that can send me a text message. And he was like, okay, these are the messages I was going to send you. I'm like, oh no, they're not lovey enough. So I literally <laughs> was like, you have to change them to say like, you love me and you miss me. So he goes through and he changes all these pre-programmed messages. And then I get them and I know that we like wrote them together, but I still get them. I'm like, oh, it's nice. But you know, it's, it's working together to, to meet those needs like you talked about. And he wouldn't send the text on his own. I mean, we've pre-programmed them, but it means the world to me to know where he is and to get these messages. And it's a little bit of sacrifice for both of us to do things sometimes. It's, it's hard. So hard yes. to collaborate sometimes. Well, and you know, that makes me think that um, one thing that I really see people struggle with is advocating for their needs. Kind of exactly what you were just saying. They expect their partner to be a mind reader. Well, they should just know. They should, he should just know that I want lovey-dovey text from the garment, right? They don't. They yeah. don't know. And if you expect your partner to be a mind reader, you are setting yourself up to be consistently disappointed and you're not going to get your needs met. And your needs are important. We want you to get your needs met. Um, so, but that can feel very vulnerable, right? Like in the moment, if let's say you came home from work and had a bad day and your partner's playing video games and you say, you know, um, I don't know, you mentioned something and your partner like doesn't really acknowledge it or ask follow-up questions, that can feel really vulnerable in that moment to say, you know what, like, I really need to talk to you about this or I really need a hug. Could you pause it and listen to me for five minutes? A lot of people don't do that. And I get it. It is vulnerable. It does feel scary. There's a risk they could say no, et cetera. But what's the alternative to just, you know, walk away, huffing and puffing, all annoyed, right? And then giving them the silent treatment, right? It just kind of creates this domino effect of all these issues. So I think that's a big part of this is learning to advocate for your needs. And um, another thing on compromise that I encourage uh, a lot of couples to do um, one thing that I think has been really effective for a lot of couples that I've worked with is the idea of taking a break. Because um, research tells us that it takes about 20 minutes for the nervous system to reset. So this is kind of a break with a twist, right? Mm -hmm. It is, let's take a break. Um, because if the anxiously attached individuals really reactive, right? And coming at the avoidantly attached and they just feel themselves completely shutting down and checking out. Well, now we're going to get nowhere, right? So when that starts to happen and we learn the skills to notice that it's going to be your best friend to take a break and five minutes ain't going to do nothing. We need at least 20 minutes to take a break. And we also want to make sure that we make a plan to revisit the conversation. Because I hear from people all the time, well, you know, we said we were going to take a break, but then we never talked about it again and never circled back. So you really need that additional part of, hey, let's take a break and reset. I'm going to go for a walk. Let's uh, meet in the living room in 30 minutes and we'll finish this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that coming back part is super important. And I, even if like, you know, as you talk about talking about talking about your communication, I encourage couples to talk about breaks before they find themselves needing a break. 
So like, what is the guideline? Cause sometimes it's really hard to say if you're like about to say something nasty or you're about to just walk out the door, it's really hard to say. Sometimes I need a break. I'll be back in 30 minutes. And so if you can previously agree on, like if someone calls the break, who comes back or how long are the breaks and how do we reunite so that if you're on the cusp of saying something nasty or you're on the cusp of just shutting down totally, how do you call it? And you both know what that means, but the key is following through on those. I think, because if you don't follow through, I don't know about your experience. Mine has been the, then the anxiously attached doesn't want to take the break. Cause you're like, you don't come back. Or if you don't let the person go, then the avoidant continues to feel like I can never have the space I need. What's your experience that, what are the trouble, what are the problems that go wrong and how do you help couples overcome them when they take breaks? Yeah, no, I think the coming back part is so key. I think, um, like we're saying, making that a plan ahead of time in the moment to be like, oh, you know what? Maybe I think we need a break like that. You know, this needs to be kind of a prior collaborative agreed upon plan and solution when we get to this point. Um, And I think also just being really aware each party when they notice that they start to need a break, right? Because I think that that's where things can really go awry is you don't communicate that and then everything just gets more and more elevated and reactive um, and that's not a good place to be, right? Mm -hmm. So like for the avoidantly attached individual, if you notice that you're now having a hard time maintaining eye contact with your partner, that's a huge tip off. If you notice that you are kind of starting to think of other things or you feel this gravitational pull in your body to run away, um, if you feel yourself shutting down and being less communicative, those are all kind of signs like I need to take a break. And for the anxiously attached individual, you know, if you start to feel anxious, if you start to feel super frustrated that you feel like you've quote unquote lost your partner or they've checked out, um, those are all signs like, okay, T.O., we got to take a break and, um, you know, come back to this because going back to the protest behaviors we talked about earlier, if you let your relationship continue in this cycle over time, those types of behavior and the things that happen and what is done in those really reactive places where the avoidant is completely shut down and the anxious is so reactive, it can be really hard to come back from those things over time. And trust erodes in your relationship. Resentment is uh, built from each party. So I think, you know, trying to nip these things in the bud, a break is going to be your best friend. Mm-hmm. They're important to take. And you gave so many really helpful cues about how you might be feeling in a break. And so many of us today were smartwatches. If your smartwatch reads that your heart rate has exceeded 100 beats per minute, (laughs) this is also a clue. It is time to take a break because what really happens is we go into that fight, flight, freeze response. We're sitting at rest with our partner, except our brain is seeing a bear. It doesn't know you're calmly chilling with your partner and it needs to time to think again and calm down and uh, just focus. Because what happens when we're escalated like that and we're noticing you know, we're trying to get away. Um, our brain is on tunnel vision. It's it's trying to figure out how to survive and we're only focused on that one thing. So if you're thinking about getting away, that's all your brain is thinking about. If you're thinking about re-engaging and trying to get your partner to re-engage, that's all you're thinking about. We have tunnel vision, we're fixed on that. And what we do need is we need a pause to allow our nervous system to reset and our heart rate is a really good indicator of that too. Oh, totally. And I mean, even if we look at this from like a polyvagal theory perspective and like our vagus nerve, like if our vagus nerve is activated, we cannot connect. Like physiologically, we are unable to connect with someone else. So I think like that just kind of hits this point home that we're talking about that when you get to that space, like nothing good is going to happen here. Mm -mm. Okay. So we're to get out of the trap, the sanctuary void and trap, what I'm hearing is you can make some changes on your own to recognize some of your own behaviors, question if they're helping you. We can take some breaks. You talked about our three C's. Can some communication, collaboration, what's the Compromise. other C? Compromise. Compromise. Okay. Um, any other tips to help yes. people get out of this trap? 
Yeah, I think um, if you are working on these things with your partner, having a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly check-in is going to be huge. This is not a one and done, right? This is something we got to revisit. We have to continue to kind of um, just check in on. So I have a lot of couples that when they do this, you know, they make it fun. Maybe they're out at dinner or whatever. They're sitting on their back porch with coffee and they kind of go over like, what do we think is going well? What do we think can be improved upon? What is your biggest struggle right now? What's your biggest gratitude, right? Like just some prompts to kind of open up this conversation in, again, a place where neither of you are reactive. It's just Saturday morning or whatever, and you're hanging out to check in and to talk about maybe some tweaks that can be made to make things even better, right? Or maybe you try something out and it doesn't go well and you can revisit it and be like, hey, you know how we tried that? Like, instead, I would really love this or Mm. whatever. Um, So I think the check-ins are really helpful. Um, finding time to spend together as a couple for someone anxiously attached, like knowing that there's a plan in place to spend time with their partner and to connect and to do something is huge. Because a lot of times I see couples where the avoidantly attached individual, like they're just doing their thing. Like they're not going to like make time for you unless it's kind of on the calendar. Right. And again, this is not intentional. They're not intentionally doing this. They're just kind of those lone wolf types. So I think it can be very comforting um, for the anxiously attached person and just for the betterment of the relationship overall to have something on the books. You know, every Sunday we take the dogs for a walk together or every Friday it's pizza night and we hang out and drink wine and make pizzas or whatever, but just having something consistent that creates stability and trust in the relationship where Mm -hmm. even if I felt disconnected from my partner, I know that Saturday night we do karaoke. I don't, you know what I mean? Like whatever. Yeah. No, Um, I think that's great. And I've had the experience as well when people are able to do that, then it's easier to give space at other times, right? Cause they're like, it's coming. So I, it's easier to balance out. Okay. This isn't um, them not caring about me or not loving me or not wanting to be around me at the times they need space, they're able to interpret that a little bit different. Like it's okay to have space. And I know we're going to reconnect at this yes. time. Um, and I think the last thing that I want to say on this, just because I work with a lot of people individually who are in this space where they feel like my partner is avoidantly attached. I've tried, they're not going to change but I'm in this. I don't want to break up. Maybe we're married. We have kids like Nicole, what do I do? I feel stuck. Um, and I think a lot of that work there is, even though this probably isn't going to sound great, but like acceptance, right? That is so freeing. If you are constantly in that space of wishing your partner was another way, you're going to be constantly frustrated and disappointed. So that can be so freeing if you feel like you're on the more anxious spectrum, your partner is avoidant, you've tried, you want to stay with them, it's not going to change. That acceptance is going to be so freeing. And I see so many women in particular getting those needs met from outside the relationship. So I see a lot of times those women or men build really strong social circles and maybe they join different clubs and they really get their, you know, love tank filled in other ways. Is it ideal case scenario? Do they wish they could get those things from their partner? Of course they do. But if you've tried and tried and it's not happening, would you rather be, you know, miserable and bummed or go get it elsewhere? Right. Um, in other ways from friendships and community, um, and things like that. And a lot of that too, uh, can be fulfilled through inner child work and reparenting, right? Kind of providing ourselves those needs that we feel like maybe we're not getting from our partner. I love that. Sometimes when I put up like posts, I find or make comments about acceptance and tolerance of your partner's fault. Sometimes I can get some flack for these, these kinds of comments. And it is true. Like choosing a partner comes with a set of problems. And if you love this person or you're in it with them, you built a family, you've built a life it's, it is sometimes just like life on life's terms. And 
you know, if I go to the AA for a second of serenity prayer, like God grant me the serenity to accept the things I, I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And sometimes we have to look and be like, what is the things I can change? What is the things I can't change? And how do I know the difference? And how do I make peace with that? Because it's really hard to be happy when you're trying to run direct and change the whole show. And sometimes that peace and happiness comes from being like, well, this is what it is. So how do I focus on what is right and let go of the places that are less than ideal for me? Totally. You know, I was working with someone who was a huge travel buff. They just love to travel and their partner was just not into it. Like they wanted to just stay at home and they were just so frustrated. Like right. they would, and then, you know, they would feel like they would finally convince their partner to take a trip trip. And then they felt like they were dragging their partner along and they were miserable the whole time. And we kind of got to this place of like, what are we doing? Right. Like, yeah. and that person kind of came to this place of acceptance, like, okay, my partner, they don't like traveling. They don't want to travel, but this is something that I really love and is important to me. How can I go do this and, you know, fulfill this need for myself? So they started traveling more with friends, family members. They went on a bunch of yoga retreats or kind of like those small group guided tours and like totally like your needs. I still want those to be met for you, but if your partner is unable or unwilling to meet them, let's get creative and find a different way. Because just sitting in that space of like, well, I really want to travel and my partner doesn't want to travel. So I guess I just can't travel and I'm going to resent them. Like that's not good for anyone. Right. Yeah. It does, does take being creative and thinking outside the box sometimes to have those needs met. And it's important to think about what are your needs and is there ways to help fill them. I love that point. I love the travel example. Okay. So we've talked about attachment. We've talked about the anxious avoidant trap. We've talked about all sorts of tips to help get your needs met, to help couples compromise, collaborate, communicate all the things. I feel like I missed a C, got a C wrong anyway. So if people are loving you, if they want to follow you, find you, learn more from you, where and how can they do that? Yeah. So you can definitely uh, find me on Instagram. That's probably where I'm most active. It's at the practice of peace. Um, and my website is the practice of peace.com and yeah, follow along. I love to connect with people in that space and it's just a lot of fun. All right. Well, we'll link all of those to the show notes. Um, Nicole loved having you on, loved meeting you almost in real life. <laughs> uh, you've given so much to think about with the anxious avoidant trap and what are some strategies and tools that these couples or people that find themselves in these situations can use to better themselves, better their relationship and, and try to see if there's a pattern they can change here. So thank you so much for all of your wisdom. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast put on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couple's therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com.